It's kind of hard to believe that um, we're already at the end of the school year. It seems to get here really, really quickly every single year. Um, but I'm excited that y'all came out tonight as we're concluding our hashtag relationship goals series. Um, and if you haven't been following with us, um, first we talked about in, in relationship goals, we talked about how our primary relationship, the number one relationship in our life is our relationship with God. And if we don't have that right, all the other relationships are going to be in turmoil. And so we talked about that first. And then Jacob came and he talked about what does it look like to have biblical community, the importance of biblical community, why we need it. And then after that, we talked about singleness and how singleness has a purpose. There's a goal in singleness. And the way we use our singleness really will determine how well we date and it will determine a lot about marriage as well. And then last week, we talked about dating. We had a dating panel. If you were here for that, hopefully it was beneficial. I know we went a little bit long last week, but hopefully it was beneficial, and um, y'all really learned a lot from that. And now this week, we're going to be talking about marriage, marriage. And as I, as I was coming to this and thinking about, okay, college students, and we're talking about marriage, um, I think if, if I were to be talking to a group of married people, I probably would approach this a little bit differently than I am tonight. But, but the goal tonight is to look at several things I think that college students and we struggle with in general that deal with really the biblical mandate of what marriage is supposed to look like and specifically in regard to gender roles. I think saying gender roles has gotten a pretty negative connotation. Um, and, and so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what does the Bible say about marriage and what does it mean? What does it mean for us? And so let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for tonight. God, we thank you for what we're about to talk about is marriage. And God, how you are the one who gave us marriage. You are the one who made it beautiful. You are the one who brought the woman to the man. You are the one who was there for the very first ceremony. And Father, I pray that we would listen to your word. We would listen to what you have to say about it. And God, we would humble ourselves this evening. Ask all this, Father, in your name. Amen. Now, I want to start with this. Why does teaching on, I guess you could even say a theology of marriage, why is teaching on this important for right now? Well, I don't know if you've heard of the word vertigo before, but vertigo can mean different things depending upon where it's at, but vertigo has this idea of being disoriented. And vertigo can specifically be really difficult for somebody who's an airline pilot or just a pilot in general. Every pilot at some point faces something called vertigo. Now, what happens is if a pilot is flying and they go through clouds or if a pilot is flying and and there's really bad weather outside or it's really dark, they can experience something called vertigo. Now, what vertigo is, is whenever they don't know if they're flying down, up, left, right, upside down, right side up, they're completely disoriented. And supposedly this causes a lot more crashes than you and I really would expect. But in training, one of the things that that pilots are continually told, look, if you want to be able to beat vertigo, if you want to be able to beat this disoriented thing that you have or that you're going to experience, you have got to learn to trust your instruments. No matter what you're doing, trust your instruments. No matter if you feel like you're upside down, no matter how you feel, trust your instruments. And y'all, what I'm going to tell you tonight is the topic we're talking about tonight, the culture has a lot to say about it. It's in disarray in a lot of ways. Like I said, whenever we talk about marriage, we're talking about a good bit of us who come from homes that are either broken, or we're talking about a good bit of us who would say, I don't want a marriage like what I've seen. I think I'm right in saying that. And so as we look at this, y'all, we have to look at our instrument. We have to look at the one thing that's not going to lead us astray. And so as we open this tonight, once again, I want you to recognize the need for this 
But I hope you also recognize that, just like I said last week, I hope we are the generation that changes the tide of marriage. I hope we are the generation that makes the divorce rate go down. I hope that we are the generation that won't make our kids deal with what a lot of kids have to deal with now. I hope that we are the generation that loves Christ enough to listen to what he has to say about marriage. And so as we talk about this, let's open up. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1 to start off. And just so you kind of have an idea of the direction, we're going to be in Genesis 1, then Genesis 2, then Genesis 3, and then we're going to go over to Ephesians 5. Um, And so we're going to be looking at several different things. Like I said, we're going to kind of be surveying and looking at a theology of marriage. And so tonight we're going to be looking at three overarching points in regards to marriage. And the first point is this, is that God created marriage. It has to start there. We have to start with understanding that God created marriage. It was his idea and the institution that he created. So if you were to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as we start this, like I said, I want to talk a little bit about gender roles as well. So for under each of our three main points, I'm going to give you four points that I want you to understand about gender that God talks about in his word and talks very specifically about. So at first we see that God created marriage. A sub point that I want you to see is this, is gender equality is talked about in God's word. Gender equality. I think sometimes we get this idea that, or people have the idea that God's word is all about oppression of women or is all about this idea of male males dominating over women, and that's just not true. And what I want you to see from the very beginning here, we see that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and he says, and let them have dominion. Let them. It's not let the man have dominion over this. It's let them have dominion. I want you to look down at verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. Whenever we talk about equality, the first thing we have to understand is this specifically is that we are uniquely made. We are different than every other creation. I I thought it was pretty neat. I read this this week. Whenever we look around at earth, we have less in common with the dog and more in common with God. We are made in his image and in his likeness. God created us uniquely. Each of us, male and female, he created us uniquely and he designed us uniquely. We aren't like the other animals. And so we see we are uniquely made. Secondly, we see we're specifically made. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And notice the caveat here. Male and female, he created them. So there's a lot of idea about gender. Y'all, gender was and is God's idea. It's not something that we just decided to start studying within the last 100 years. Gender is God's idea. Male and female is God's idea. It's a part of his created order. And to understand biblical marriage, we have to first understand that God created gender with distinct purposes and distinct roles. He created us equally. He created us uniquely. He created us specifically. And once again, we are equally made. As I said before, he says that, that let them have dominion over the earth. 
This is a joint effort. It's not just a man. This is a joint effort. And so now I want us to flip over and I want us to look at something else. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And like I said, we're going to be surveying a lot of different passages, so I'm not going to be giving a exhaustive, um, not going to be exhaustive anywhere, but looking at several different spots. Chapter 2, verse 7. So, well, I guess before I get to that. So Genesis 1, we talk about creation at large. And then in Genesis 2, God gets more specific, and, and he gets more specific in talking about exactly how we were created. And so in Genesis 2, we see a little bit more of an expansion of what happened whenever male and female were created, whenever the man and the woman were created. And we see in Genesis 2, verse 7, it says this. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so we see the creation of man. Now skip down to verse 15. Now man was created for a distinct purpose. It says, Then the Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, I think whenever I've thought about this before, this idea that God created a man, he created a garden, he put the man in the garden, I got this idea that God created a farmer. You know, like that's what God created him for. He created him to go out there to bush hog, to do all these things, to plow the fields, whatever he has to do. He created a farmer. And as I've read more about this, y'all, it's really interesting a lot of the stuff that you hear about this, whenever, whenever he was told to go and cultivate and keep the garden, this was to be a significant act of worship. This is God created everything and then God created this man uniquely and said, I'm going to give you dominion over these things. Now go and cultivate this and keep this. This was a distinct act of one worshiping God and obeying God. So much so one scholar says you could use them interchangeably. You could say God put him in the garden to worship and obey him and the means by which he did that was to cultivate and to keep the garden so we see this is one of the primary purposes of man is to worship God and to obey God now I'm giving this intro because this all has a point leading up to whenever the female is created and so we see the male is created he's put in the garden he said cultivate and keep it and then now let's go to chapter 2 verse 18 through 25 2 verses 18 through 25 it says this then the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, first I want to say this. A lot of people say Adam was lonely in the garden. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. It says that Adam was alone. And who was it that noticed it? God. God's the one that noticed the deficiency, not Adam. He says that the Lord God saw that it wasn't good for him to be alone. And that he needed a helper fit for him. And so, verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. I want to explain this real quick. This is a really neat setting. So we see that God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for him to be alone. This isn't good. I'm looking at a lot of college guys that are single. It's not good, right? It's not good for guys to be alone. Go to one of their apartments. It's not good. It doesn't look good. I'm just kidding. But so it's, God looks and sees a man and says, it's not good for him to be alone. But then what does God do? Does God say, okay, let me go ahead and put him into a deep sleep and fashion the woman? No. Instead, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Adam, sit here. I'm going to bring all the animals, all the creatures to you, and I want you to name them. 
Now, I think sometimes we get a wrong idea of how he's going to name them. It's not like, like we would name our pets or something like that. It's not like, oh, here's Bozo. Oh, here's Skippy. Oh, here's, you know, I can't even think of another. I don't have a dog. Jimmy, I don't know what you'd want to call it. But, but so it's not, like, it's not like he just arbitrarily threw out these random names for these animals. Names held meaning. Names were significant. And what we'll find even later, in, in, in our words, we see whenever, whenever Adam actually names the woman and calls her woman, it is significant. You see, the name has a lot to do with the nature. And as he looked at these different animals and he looked at their nature, he named them. And so what God, in essence, is doing is showing, as he says right here, Adam did not find a helper fit for him. So God saw the deficiency for Adam, but Adam didn't see it. But as all these creatures walked by and as he named them, eventually it got into Adam's mind like, wait a minute, who's there that's like me? Who is there that, that has a nature like mine? Who is like me? And look at what it says after that. So in verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's pretty neat that the first human words recorded in history is the man saying, wow. <laughs> saying like, holy cow. Like somebody like me, somebody who is like me now, somebody with a nature like mine. And just like how it's man and woman in Hebrew, it's the same way. Man is ish. And he says, Isha, he, she's a part of who he is. She has come from who he is. He says, she is like me. We have the same nature. We have the same likeness. And he notices something in her that he doesn't notice in all the creatures. Is that this is someone else like me. And God created these two people for a unique bond. Notice what happens. Verse 24 and 25 says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we see this. We see that, I just want you to try and imagine the scene. So this guy's asleep. God takes a rib from him, fashions a woman, and then basically has her somewhere else, has her hidden, wakes Adam back up. And I can only imagine what that conversation is like. Is hey, Adam, I have one more person for you to see. Like I got one more person for you to check out here. And, and, and he presents the woman to him. God presents this woman to Adam and Adam is amazed by it. And then God tells him, look, you too will be joined in marriage. You too will once again become one flesh. I don't have to have any sort of discussion with you about that, how that works. But the truth is this, is that, that there's a one flesh union that happens between a man that's almost a returning to what once was. And in one flesh, it means more than just that. The union of marriage isn't just one flesh sexually. It's one flesh in almost every regard. It's one flesh in us completely giving all of ourselves to another person and all of themselves back to us. Why is sex such a difficult subject? Why is sex such a temptation? Why does sex produce so much brokenness? It's because you are committing an act with someone that honestly is the most intimate act that you know of on this earth. It's the most binding act that you know of on this earth. That's why it's so powerful, because God created it for such a great good to be between one man and one woman in marriage. This is God's design. This is how God created it. 
Now, a specific thing I want you to see in here here is first I talked about gender equality. Secondly, I want you to see gender distinction. Gender distinction is we see that, that God created man first. God created him and told him, I want you to cultivate and keep the garden. God told him, I want you to worship and obey me. God told him, this is what you are supposed to do. And then God created the woman. And God calls the woman the helper that is fit for him. So we see two things here. We see one, male headship. And two, we see woman as the helper. And now what, what exactly does this mean? I love how one guy, Ray, Raymond Ortland, says this. He says, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, male headship is this. It's when the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. You see, I think sometimes we misunderstand what male headship is about. Male headship is about being the leader and recognizing one day the male will have to stand before God and give an account for how he's led the woman. But led her in what? In the original mandate to worship and to obey him. And so male headship is not male domination, and we'll talk more about that later, but male headship is God-given. It's saying that you were created first, she was created from you, she's the helper that is fit for you to do what I've called you to do. Now, what does it mean that, that the woman was a helper fit for him? I think sometimes we put this in a wrong connotation, but we first need to understand this. It's not good that Adam was alone and Eve was God's solution to that deficiency, Hear that again. Eve was God's solution for whenever he looked at Adam and said, this is not good that you are alone. And so the helper that is fit for him, God is the one who gave Eve to Adam. God is the one who fashioned the woman into existence. God is the one who chose the way that he would create here. And the question is, is what is this helper? What is she supposed to help him do is to worship and to obey God. And even more specifically, if you look back at Genesis 1.28, you notice the command that God gives to both of them. In 1.28 it says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over. And he goes through the list. Y'all, it's really hard to be fruitful and multiply alone. It is, right? You can't. You can't be fruitful and multiply alone. God said, you both be fruitful, multiply, Feel the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And what I want you to see is there is a created order of male headship and the woman being the suitable God-chosen helper for him in marriage. Why don't we start here? Why don't we go back to the beginning? Because I want you to understand this, the fall distorted marriage. God created marriage. And then second point is the fall distorted marriage. I'm sure that most of you probably know the story of Genesis 3, and I want to summarize this for you. So you see Adam and Eve are in the garden. The serpent comes to Eve one day and basically starts talking to her and saying, Eve, you know, you might need to rethink this whole God thing. Did God really tell you that this would happen? Questioning what God had to say. Not only questioning what God had to say, but questioning who he really was. If you look in your Bibles, you notice all from the beginning to this point, God has only been known as Lord God. It's a personal God and an absolute God. Then we see the devil only talks about him as the God, as an impersonal God. It says, look, God isn't really looking out for you. God isn't really trying to take care of you. What he's really doing is he's keeping you from what you truly could be. He's keeping you from being like him. If you would just eat this, then you would be like him. And we see that Eve takes the fruit and Eve eats of the fruit. 
Not only does she eat of the fruit, but we see that, that the man was close by. Adam was close by. It says that she took some and she gave it to her husband and he ate of it. After he ate of it, both of their eyes were opened. I do think it's interesting that whenever Eve ate, nothing happened. Whenever Adam ate, both of their eyes were opened. Then we see what happens from there. They run. They recognize they're naked. They run and they go hide. And then God comes walking in the garden and he starts calling out for Adam and says, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? And Adam comes out and says, Lord, I was afraid because I'm naked. He says, who told you that you were naked? And then he took full responsibility, right? Not at all. He said, the woman you gave me, she is the problem. Eve is the one who did it. And then Eve said what? But this serpent, he deceived me. He told me these lies. He told me these things. And the next part we see, starting in verse 15, we see that the, the judgment that is placed on these three. We see the judgment on the serpent, which where we get the great promise that Christ one day will come and crush the head of the serpent. But what I want to look at is what is the judgment on the female and the male? Because this has a lot to do with male-female relationship, headship, and being the helper. Look at Genesis 3, verse 16. Genesis 3, verse 16. It says this, To the woman he said, God is pronouncing judgment, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now understanding this, so in the first sin, we see that Eve was deceived. But one of the things that we have to ask is, wasn't Adam there? Wasn't Adam beside Eve whenever she was deceived? Where, Where was Adam to be found? Why wasn't Adam leading? Why didn't Adam step in? Why didn't Adam, what was he doing? Well, then not only do we see him standing aside and letting her eat first, but then we also see he passively took it and just ate of it because she ate of it. And what we see in in the first time that we see sin is we see a breach of the created order of the male not leading as he was called to lead. The woman was deceived and the man was nowhere to be found in leadership. And then what we see here is God pronouncing judgment on them. Notice once again what he says in judgment. He doesn't say, because you sinned, women, now you will have to give birth. That was always going to happen. He says, because you sinned, now you will have pain in childbirth. That affects a mom. Affects someone who will be a mom. Now, what about being a wife? Look at the next thing that it says. It says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In essence, he says, there will be conflict between the male and female relationship because of sin, period. And let me tell you the two main ways that it's manifested. One, males will dominate over women and rebel against God's created order. Unfortunately, most of history, this is what you have seen. Males dominating over women. Males acting like they are, are, are somehow superior or greater than and, and not loving their wives, not loving the woman, but instead dominating over her. But then secondly, and more prevalent we see to now, we see females now are seeking to rule over men and rebelling against God's created order. We see this happening in both facets today of males still trying to dominate 
girls saying, no, I'm going to take the lead because you won't or you haven't done it well, which is very true a lot in our society. And so we see sin brought forth these consequences, the consequences that we are dealing with whenever it comes to marriage. This is all from the beginning. This is all a result of the fall and the punishment that God put on Eve. Now, notice what he said to Adam. And notice for hers, it was about being a mother and a wife. For his, look at what it's about. It's about the responsibility of providing. It's about the responsibility of being the husband. He says this, he says, he says, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In other words, he didn't say that work was a result of the fall, though some of us like to think that that's the case. Work wasn't a result of the fall, but pain in work was a result of the fall. And so we see God telling Adam, whenever you try to provide for your family, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard because of your sin. I want you to notice how the effects of sin that God puts on them are directly related to a marriage relationships. How the fall was a direct relation to how male and female both fell out of their God-given roles. Both acted in a way that was not in line with their God-given roles. Male headship has been there from the beginning. I want you to understand this. Look again at verse 17. I want you to notice how God talks to Adam to begin with. To Eve, he just says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. He just goes into the punishment. For the man, look at how he starts talking to the man. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. You see, whenever Eve took a bite of the fruit, nothing happened yet. Whenever Adam took a bite of the fruit, what happened? Their eyes were opened. We see whenever God goes walking in the garden, does he go looking for Eve? No, he goes looking for Adam. And the question is why? Is it because Adam is superior? No, that's not the case at all. There is equality between both male and female. But the male assumes the role as the leader and it is, it is his God-given responsibility. That's why we see in Romans 5, 12, we don't see Eve getting put under the bus. We see that through one man came sin. Romans 5, 12, through one man came sin. And through that one man came death to all men because all men sinned. Adam was a representative figure. And so what we see from the very beginning is this, is we see that God has created an order. Two genders equal. Two genders equal in person, both created in his image, both created in his likeness. And y'all all add this, the reason that the devil wants to get at marriage more than anything else is the first thing he wanted to get at. His goal was to make man and woman rebel against God. That's the first goal, and it worked. Now, secondly, I want you to think of this. He, he came after us as the image and likeness of God, and now we are broken. But you know, the second thing that really has a sibling resemblance or an interesting resemblance to the Trinity is marriage. See, in the Trinity, you find something really profound. You find God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one entity. And you're like, how does that make sense? And in the same way Paul says, whenever a male and a female get married, they become one. Two persons, but one. And Paul himself says, this is a profound mystery. You want to know why the devil attacks marriages? Because it's the closest thing we have to showing people what the Trinity looks like. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's equal. I'm just saying that God has a specific bearing on marriage as two persons, yet one flesh. In the same way, the Trinity has three persons 
and yet one entity. And what we have to see here is God created marriage and he created it good. But because of the fall, it's been distorted. And specifically, our genders have been distorted. The way that we think about genders has been distorted. And we see that happening in the roles here. And so I guess the question would be, do we even see these still today? Do we see domineering men still today? Do we see a divorce-ridden culture still today? Do we still see men who sit back passively and don't want to lead? Do we still see women who, if, because the guy's not doing it, the woman will, will take the initiative. She will act. Do we see today the woman saying, I'm going to exercise dominion? Now, hear me clearly before I keep going further than this. This is in regards to marriage. I'm not saying in an office, in an office space, and we'll talk about that, I guess, a little bit more in a minute, but this is regarding marriage specifically. This is not talking about me and any of the girls here in this room. I do not exercise leadership over you other than a part of the church. I'm the college pastor, and y'all go here. That's great. I love that. But if I told you to do anything, you could look at me and say, no, I don't want to. And that would be okay. Like, that would be perfectly fine. You would be perfectly in your right to do that. And so what I want you to see is this for a marriage relationship. And what we see is we see brokenness all over the place in relationships today, and it's a direct result of the fall. And so I guess the question is, is are we just out of luck? Is there no hope with this? Is there no way to restore what once was or to recognize that we can get back to something now that it's broken? And the question is, is one word, Jesus. Jesus. I want to show you this, how, how the gospel restores marriage. I want you to see how the gospel restores marriage and how the gospel specifically in Jesus Christ shows us exactly what it means to be in each of our roles as followers of Christ in marriage. Because I feel like we talk a lot about the guy, but maybe not so much about the girl and how God also through Jesus Christ shows exactly what that's supposed to look like. And so I want you to flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And like I said, we've looked at several different things. First, hopefully we looked at what the Bible talks about gender. It says gender equality, and we see gender distinction. We see some gender distortion, and then here's where we see gender restoration. And this idea where the gospel restores marriage, and the only way to have a gospel-centered marriage is for it to be restored by the gospel. Let's look at Ephesians 5. We're going to look first at 22 through 24. It says this, wives, notice who he's talking to and who he's not talking to, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So what we see is we see a distinction here. We see as the helper, women are called to humble submission. Now my question is this. First off, whenever I say the word submit, what does that stir up in you? My guess is there's probably plenty of girls who whenever you hear the word submit, you can't think of anything positive to say about the word. You can't think of anything positive to think about that word. This idea of submission is, is this idea of a negative turn. It's, it's oppression. It's male domination. And in the same way, I think if I were to say submission, I think some guys in this room would think, submit, woman. You know? Like we've heard people say that. But I want to start by you understanding this. Who is Paul talking to? 
He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Notice what he does not say. Husbands, tell your wives to submit to you. He does not say that. Both the idea that the man can demand submission from his wife and the woman who thinks submission is of the devil, both of those are equally wrong views. And so what you have to see here is is, is one, this isn't the husband calling the woman to submit by no means. This idea of submission is actually a voluntary act of the woman. Wives, submit to your husband. This is him encouraging you to do this. This means you have the voluntary action and desire to either say no or to say yes. It is not something that the man, the man cannot come up to you and say, hey, you're my wife, therefore you must submit to me. It's the biblical mandate and God is speaking to wives saying, look, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. This is for your good. Submission does not mean you have to do whatever your husband says. Submission does not mean that you are somehow lesser than. So the question is, what does it mean to submit? I love this definition given by Ben Stewart in his book, Single Dating Engaged Married. He says this, to submit means to recognize and respond to a husband's leadership. To submit means to recognize and to respond to a husband's leadership. Notice the responsibility of the man. I don't want to say it exactly like this, but I kind of do, to earn the right. Notice the responsibility of the man. If he is not leading, if he is not submitting to God, why would the woman want to submit to him? And we'll talk a little bit more clearly about that in just one second. But to submit means to recognize and respond to a husband's leadership. And I want you to think of these two. Recognize that God has given the man responsibility to lead the family and that he will ultimately be responsible for this. Girls, I can't fully explain to you this, but I can remember the first time it really hit me that one day I will have to give an account for how I've led in my marriage. And see, leadership is not the way we think of it. Leadership doesn't mean I walk around with my chest high and I tell my wife to do this, this, and this. I've ordered her around. No, the way Jesus defines leadership is how much do you love and serve her? Leadership isn't on my terms. It's on God's terms. It isn't the way I define leadership. It's the way that he does. And so for, for women, if, if you are looking for a man, you have to look for a man who humbly submits to God first. And then you recognize in marriage, you have been called to humbly submit to him as he humbly submits to Christ. We have to recognize that. Secondly, it's recognize that and respond to that. And by that, it means responding to your husband's leadership, being supportive of him as the leader and aid in worshiping and obeying God as a couple. Submission does not mean that you are lesser than. And let me explain why. You all think so often, once again, we use this term submission and we use it negatively. We think of it negatively. We think of it in this low light. But let me ask you, what's the greatest act of human history? It's whenever Jesus Christ submitted himself to the Father's will. Philippians 2 gets even more specific. It says he humbled himself. He stripped himself of all glory and came down to earth and died in the most gruesome way possible. Jesus submitted to the will of God the Father. Does that make Jesus lesser than? Does that make Jesus no longer God? Does that make Jesus no longer as powerful as God? Does that make Jesus somehow a lesser part of the Trinity? Not at all. But Jesus' role was to submit to the will of the Father and humbly come here 
and pay the ultimate penalty for us. If it wasn't for humble submission, you and I would not be able to know God. And so once again, women, whenever you look for the ultimate example of what does it look like to humbly submit, once again, Jesus Christ is the only true example of that. And Jesus Christ shows it perfectly of two persons in equality, but one submitting to the other out of love. Just as Jesus humbly submitted himself to God, women, you're called to humbly submit yourself to the husband. And girls, I'll tell you this, find someone you would gladly submit to. I've never, never seen a man who led well that the woman did not delight in submitting to him. You know why? Because whenever he led well, she felt loved. When he led well, she felt cared for. And we'll talk more about that in the next part here. Pick someone whom you believe and know he is submitting to God. And submitting to him would be a delight and a joy because I know through him we both can fulfill what God has called us to do, to worship and obey him. The woman is called to humble submission. Secondly, we see that as the head of the home, men are called to servant leadership. Look at verse 25. And I just want to start at the very beginning. It says, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He begins like this saying, husbands, love your wives. Many of you have heard this word agape. It's a word that I feel like went around a ton for a while there. But in Greek, there are multiple ways to say the word love. But here it's the word agape. It's, it's the love that honestly God bestows upon us. It's this unconditional love. It's this love that says no matter what you do, I will stay. It's this love that says there's nothing you can do that will separate me from you. It's this love that says I will do anything in the world for you. This is not cheap love. This is not just some love that's only based on feeling. This love is based on the way God loves his church on the way Jesus loved his church and gave himself up for her. And in the context of a world that has a lot of male domination, you have to understand that the Bible is the furthest thing from male domination. I love what one author said. He says this, he says, biblical male headship is this. It's when the man undertakes to serve his wife and family by providing the leadership that will glorify God and benefit without regard for the price that the man must pay to fulfill that responsibility. Headship calls us men to lay down our lives for our families. To love your wife well means you will do anything to take care of her. You will do anything to provide for her. You will do anything to love her. And it gets even more specifically throughout this passage. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, or he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Once again, notice who the example is. Women, just as you were called to to humbly submit the way Jesus humbly submitted to the Father and came and paid the ultimate price, 
Men, we are called, if you get blessed to be in a marriage, you are called to love your wife unconditionally. I love the way this guy says it. You will lay down your life for your wife and for your family. You will do anything and everything possible to provide for them and care for them and love them. And in this passage, we see several different things that that calls us to do. First, men, we have got to be initiators. Notice that Jesus didn't wait in heaven until we called him to come save us. Jesus initiated his love for us by coming to us. We are called to initiate love, to initiate initiate service, to initiate what it truly means to live out the gospel in our homes. When When men fully initiate in their homes, you will find the wife and the children delight in following him. Not only are we called to initiate, we're, we're called to help the woman be all that she can possibly be as a follower of Christ. You know, this is the neat cycle of God's method, is while the man is going to have, as the leader, he is going to have to give an account for how he's led his wife. He is the one who has the responsibility of making sure that happens. But if he leads well, it is for her benefit. If she leads well, it is for his benefit. And this is the glory of what you see in Christian marriage is you see a husband and a wife who are not in it for themselves and their own benefits, but for each other out of their mutual love. This is what we see biblical marriage is. This is what we don't see often enough today. We see men putting work above family. We see men putting activities in front of family, sports in front of family, anything in front of family. And y'all, we have to be the ones to turn the tide. To be a true leader in your home, you have to be the biggest servant. One guy sums it up by saying this, know your wife, study her, serve her, love her, seek to help her reach her full potential in Christ. The truth is this, man, just as Jesus gave his life for the church because of his love for her, you were called to love your wife through servant leadership. And once again, I've never seen a woman who didn't delight in following a husband who leads and loves her well because he's not in it for himself, he's in it for her and vice versa. We have to be the ones to turn the tide. My advice to guys is take this command seriously. If you're not humbly submitting to the Lord, you're not ready to lead. It's that simple. If you're not humbly seeking to follow the Lord, you're not ready to lead. Y'all hope that through this you've seen marriage is created by God. The fall is what's distorted it. But through the gospel, we have the restoration of what this is supposed to look like. A gospel-centered marriage is the only marriage that will fulfill us and bring God the most glory. So the question is this, how will you respond I know this isn't exactly the most typical, oh, I got to respond and do this right now. But the question is, how will you respond? Girls, what values will you look for in a man? What values will you prize in a man? I want to encourage you, if you are dating someone and you don't see these leadership qualities in them, then you're just going to save yourself a lot of hurt and pain by getting out of the relationship. Man, I want to tell you once again, if you are not seeking to follow Christ and submit to him, you are not ready to lead in a relationship. That's not mean. That's just being honest. I was there, and it wrecked havoc. And y'all, I don't want to say any of this 
especially um, making it sound like I have this all down. I, I told Emily before I came here tonight, I said, it's really tough to go and preach a sermon that I'm struggling with saying there are aspects of my life where I'm not doing this well. But y'all, what I want to encourage y'all and what I want to tell y'all and really what I want to beg y'all is please, let's be the culture that turns the tide. Let's be the generation that in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of the clouds, in the midst of the storm, let's look at the instrument. Let's study it. Let's live by it. And let's believe it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, that you tell us it's true. We thank you that you tell us it's, it's without error. God, we thank you that you have given it to us, Lord. I pray that we would, we would listen to its message. We would heed what it has to say to us, God. We recognize the beauty that you have given us in marriage. That we'd recognize the joy that you have given us in marriage. God, but I pray that we'd recognize the danger in going into marriage with wrong motives, with wrong ideas. I pray that we'd recognize the danger of going into marriage with our own ideas of how this should work and how this should go. God, I pray for the students in here as, as most of them, I'm guessing, would want to get married one day, Lord. I pray that they would first look at their relationship with you and recognize you are the foundation you are the standard. You are what brings endurance to marriage. You are what brings endurance to life. You are what brings holiness into our lives, God. And I pray that we would follow you. God, I pray tonight we'd make a covenant that we will look at your word and we'll see what you have to say about this important topic. And Lord, that we would follow you. Help us, Lord, respond as you call us to. In your name. Amen. Y'all, I just want to end with three questions. One in general, one to the women, one to the men. I want to ask this. Are you submitting first and foremost to Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's where it starts. Tonight, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, then I'm going to tell you, relationships are going to be tough. Life is going to be tough. I'm not saying it's going to be easy this way. I'm just saying that, that it begins here submitting your life to Christ. I want to encourage you, if you don't have that relationship with him, will you do that tonight? Secondly, I want to ask, women, will you strive to follow Christ so closely that you'll learn what humble submission looks like? Will you strive to follow Christ so closely that you will gain that attribute that you find only in him perfectly? And will you submit to God's created order for marriage? Not believing what the culture says submission means, but looking at what God says submission means. Lastly, men, will you strive to follow Christ so closely in order to learn how to imitate sacrificial love to your wife? Will you take the responsibility as the leader of your family and lead well?